Hello. Good evening, everybody. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. We die money. It's not bad so far. Thank you. I was just going to say, if I am, um, I'm not great at projecting my voice, so just come nearer if you find you can't hear. But Munisha does project her voice very nicely. My beautiful assistant. So it was worked so well having Vijabadri reading the poems last week. I quite enjoyed it, so I thought we'll do it again this week, even though I do have a voice-ish, more of, the, more of a voice than last week. Yeah. So, yeah, this week's talk is called Creative Emotion, Opening the Wild Rose of the Heart, I wrote here. That was very poetic. I had a poetic moment when I was coming up with the title. Uh, wild Rose of the Heart, Opening the Wild Rose of the Heart. So, yeah. So here we go. We're setting out on the second stage of our path, the stage of um, positive emotional energy, as it's called, as Bansi calls it. So last week, we began uh, to explore the topic of integration, the process of slowly gathering the various, our various weird and wonderful strands of our psyches, gathering them together through mindfulness and awareness. Um, yeah, and I think uh, I was just uh, reminding us how fragmented we can sometimes feel, and we have often have divided aims. We're quite conflicted at times, uh, unable to really commit ourselves uh, quite often, or you know, we even from one, one moment to the next. I found that actually as I was writing my talk, uh, like this morning, I was thinking. I was feeling really out of touch with positive emotion. I think, what, what am I doing writing this talk on positive emotion? Um, and uh, so on. And then the next moment, something different emerges. Yeah, so this whole first stage of the spiritual life is really a, a self-healing, I was thinking. It, we're, in a way, we're healing ourselves into wholeness through awareness. Uh, we're flowering into a wholeness uh, which is much, much bigger than we can possibly imagine as it grows and as it flourishes. And drawing from Bhante's inspiration, I was suggesting last week that we could think of our beings as mandalas, maybe three-dimensional mandalas even, perhaps inspired by the beautiful mandalas of Fiona James on our walls. Very beautiful. We're, each of us a beautiful, intricate uh, mandala of qualities and attributes. Uh, in our mandala... Every every total every um, every part of us has its place. It can have its place. Yeah, if we could really believe that, <clears throat> we haven't got to leave anything out. So over time, we can allow more and more aspects of ourselves, our um, the bits we like, the bits we don't like so much, the subpersonalities, uh, all our interests, to find some place in that mandala. And they're held. And uh, I was uh, saying last week, really, they're they're held together. Everything's held together by the focus, the the um, aspect of ourselves, which is the leading, the deepest, perhaps the uh, most fundamental part of ourselves, which in a way draws everything together, draws everything along in a stream of sort of consciousness. And I think we're often pretty unaware of what that might be. So I was thinking, in a way, that's a, that's an interesting thing just to mull over as time goes on, isn't it? Um, what is that aspect of myself? What is that with the deep, sort of the deepest, the deepest um, feeling, almost the highest part of myself? 
And in a way, the stronger and the clearer that can be, I think, that magnetic focus, uh, the greater is the, in a way, the breadth and the intensity of, uh, well, the breadth of the mandala and the intensity with which our energies can just sort of hang there, come into being in a graceful, uh, enjoyable way. So, yeah, um, so I was thinking about this area of emotions and the uh, area we're going into this week is particularly the positive emotions, positive emotional energy. And it's certainly true for me that the main reason I'm uh, unintegrated, the aspects of me that aren't integrated, is to do with emotion. Um, Bhante says somewhere how most of the time we are actually led by the emotions and drives of which we're not very conscious uh, that sort of continues. I guess we get gradually more and more conscious as we meditate more. We do become more aware of what those drives are. Um, but even so, it's like a bit of an iceberg scenario. You know, we, we get this. Sort of, we do have some awareness of the tips of the icebergs, but we're not always very aware of the bulk of ice that's underneath the surface uh, and how, maybe how deep those drives are. Actually, uh, I guess they're rooted eventually in greed, hatred, and delusion. The three poisons in some sort of way, the uh, negative drives. Yeah, Yeah. so I, yes, I'm very aware of myself of, uh, in a way, repressing or suppressing aspects of myself that seem to not be very convenient in my mandala. It was all don't fit for some reason. Embarrassment was something I came, that came to my mind that um, I can feel embarrassed by aspects of myself sometimes and sort of don't want them to be very obvious uh, I'm sure we've all got something like that in our lives. Um, uh, it can be my feelings or my emotions. Um, and sometimes it's uh, just not wanting to expose myself, I suppose. And I guess, I guess men, unless we're really uh, diehard extroverts, many of us are a bit like that, aren't we? We're, we'd rather, well, in a way, we're a bit careful with the tender parts of ourselves. Um, yeah, there's aspects I haven't liked about myself such as I, the sadness I was mentioning last week I think I actually I'm sort of I think I do begin to like that now it's, as time has gone on I think it's sort of deep and melancholy and poetic now <laughs> it's got good points <laughs> but even so I think sometimes I'm still not so sure it depends what it does you know where it goes <laughs> and then there's aspects of myself I don't really approve of and therefore I try not to notice such as wanting to go shopping <laughs> And, uh, um, yeah, the urge, urge to accumulate things. Actually, um, Vanessa and I, in our study group, we've been talking about having a month not doing any shopping. And that was really, we did do that, and that was really helpful, actually. I find it actually quite enjoyable and uh, sort of simplifying. I'm not a great person for renunciation for some reason. It's never been my leading edge. Um, <laughs> being a craving type. <laughs> which I admit here and now, I am a craving type as opposed to a hate type, I think. Hate's more under the surface. Um, but yes, it's... Uh, yes, so there's... It, it, can, it, can, it can... We can get to the point where we, you know, we think we should, as developing Buddhists, we should, by now, at least, have stopped you know, being interested in what Marks and Spencer's sale is like you know, and, and have deeper interests... <laughs> And so we, may, we might find it hard to, uh, <laughs> hard to sort of uh, share that with newcomers, for example. And, uh, <laughs> yes, it takes 30 years to progress from Marks and Spencer's to some other sale. Uh, 
Yes. <laughs> Little. Little. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So what, why am I saying all this? Um, yeah, yeah, so I was reflecting that rather than, sometimes rather than having the pain, as it were, of being aware of all those conflicting energies in my psyche, it's sort of more convenient to get rid of them. You can feel as it's more convenient to push them down. Um, the ones that don't time with my view of myself. So there's something to think about. Is, do we do that? Uh, do we tend to do that? And then we can fool ourselves that we're okay and things are going along swimmingly, but in a way we've just made ourselves a rather superficial, nice Buddhist. So, um, All right, so, yes. And at the same time, yeah, there's just moving on to this beautiful poem that Munich is about to read. And thinking, yeah, there's an aspect in there, I suppose it is about... Um, showing oneself, exp- um, expressing, exposing the sort of the more tender, delicate side of ourselves. I think that it's a bit like if we try and repress one thing, we often end up repressing quite a lot, more than we want to, really. So we hold the heart down because we're not quite sure what it's going to do and how embarrassing it's really going to be. Uh, so we might, embar- we might hold down too much, too much of the tenderness that's got the, that has got the real life in it. Yeah, so... Yeah, this poem that Minish is going to read is on that theme. It's called Bluebird by Charles Bukowski. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough for him. I say, stay in there. I'm not going to let anybody see you. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out. But I pour whiskey on him and inhale cigarette smoke. And the whores and the bartenders and the grocery clerks never know that he's in there. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out. But I'm too tough for him. I say, stay down. Do you want me to mess up? Sorry, I say, stay down. Do you want to mess me up? You want to screw up the works? You want to blow my book sales in Europe? There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too clever. I only let him out at night, sometimes when everybody's asleep. I say, I know that you're there, so don't be sad. Then I put him back. But he's singing a little in there. I haven't quite let him die. And we sleep together like that, with our secret pact. And it's nice enough to make a man weep. But I don't weep. Do you? sobering poem in a way isn't it but a very beautiful image of the bluebirds and yeah the sort of potential and the awareness really that he has about his um, bargaining with the bluebird about what's appropriate and what isn't yeah yeah so we may have some very deep 
habits and ways of protecting ourselves. And I'm just thinking how important it is to be, um, in a way, to honour those and be gentle and careful with ourselves as we try to integrate. Um, Because we can't force ourselves to integrate. Uh, I was thinking about the image of, I think I might have done it once or twice, this thing of, you know, you've got this bud and it isn't really opening. Sort of trying to open the petals, trying to force the flower bud to open. Um because I haven't got the patience to, to wait for it. And, uh, well, it, it doesn't really work because the petals don't really open properly and they stay all sort of crinkled and shut up and they don't sort of, you don't, they don't sort of blossom and you don't get any fragrance either. It's a bit like it's a very artificial thing. You've just got this forced destruction of a flower, really, when it comes to it. Um, and then there's no seed. Nothing comes from it. There's something about that in ourselves. I think we can't, we can't, you can't force emotions to change. Actually, we can't force ourselves to open faster than our hearts want to and are ready for. And uh, and it is through love of ourselves, really, that we're going to be, you know, opening and love from our friends. Um, maybe the, the basking in the love of the Buddhas. It's sort of that's what helps us to open our hearts. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, just so important to bring as kindly an awareness as we can to ourselves, a non-judgmental awareness, uh, an allowing sort of awareness. And then our beings will open gradually to the light of that awareness, like a blossom unfolding its petals in the sun, just very naturally. It's a natural thing. Um, and our, our petals, well, we, we, uh, we probably know that we don't open our hearts when we perceive the the harsh judgment around us from ourselves or from others we just don't we sort of clam up don't we and protect ourselves it's hard to do anything about that we we close more tightly than ever yeah so it's uh integration is the business of a lifetime um so it's uh, we might just sit back really sit back with it and uh, be patient and enjoy that and just let it take the time it's going to take without I suppose it's one of these middle way situations, not sort of just letting go of it and forgetting it, but on the other hand, um, not forcing it. So, yeah, letting it take the time it takes. It's the, it is the whole of the spiritual life, integration. It's stage one of the path, uh, but we don't stop integrating ourselves as we go through the whole path. These five stages are really stages of continual uh, integration. Each stage we go through deepens that integration. So the stage of positive emotion we're going through now we're entering into is a stage um, yeah the heart's going to open even more of course and we're going to integrate much more deeply probably with the heights of ourselves much more powerfully in this stage of uh, positive emotional um, energy and yeah the leading edge of all of that is awareness uh, but it has to be a meta-based awareness I'm not sure how much of that I was talking about last week but uh, yeah Mm. that's sort of obvious from what I've been saying it's, it's meta, meta really goes hand in hand always with awareness and mindfulness in, the, in our spiritual lives and that's really why we encourage uh, us to um, alternate those practices of meta bhavana and mindfulness of breathing um, you know, in our lives so that we can actually um, have a metaphor awareness and um, what's the other way around a mindful meta yeah this is, it's, we can't really separate them out. Uh, 
I just thought I'd mention also the other aspect. I think we didn't look at much last week in terms of integration is the that it is also very much a stage of ethics, ethical awareness. Um, so what we're doing at the beginning, it's this sort of preparation stage, and of course that carries on through our lives too. We're bringing in the, the first two stages of another path, which are called the seven limbs of enlightenment, which I was reading about in um, Bhante's book, Living with Awareness, plug of the week, Living with Awareness by Bhante, fantastic book. So I've got quite a lot really in this talk has come from there and last week's talk as well. Um, very, he's very inspired by integration and, and awareness. So this this uh, path, the seven limbs of enlightenment, they're called the Bodhiangas. That's the traditional name for them. The first two stages are mindfulness and then investigation of mental states, which is Dhamma Vichaya. And that sounds a wee bit technical. Investigation of mental states, sort of thing that makes you turn off and think. I'll just come back to the talk in a moment <laughs> when she stopped talking about that. But um, actually, it's just another aspect of mindfulness that helps us to um, decide, really, what we're going to do with that information. We've become more aware of something in ourselves, and then we decide on that basis, well, am I going to uh, feed that or not? Is that something in me that I'd like to see grow, or shall I uh, you know, just see where that's come from, if it's more unskillful? thing yes oh I've got a nice little bit here what I've written um, this, this is my Dhamma Vichaya talking to me it says hello Dianandi are you awake this is what you're about to do Dianandi are you sure it fits in with your values didn't you just say you wanted to be more careful with your humour and weren't you going to do less shopping <laughs> so that's, that's how Dhamma Vichaya works in our lives uh, it's a wee bit like a sort of conscience aspect, really. Um, mindfulness has got that very strong element of, you know, it keeps us on the path. So I've got a quote, I've got a quote from Bounty around the effect of this um, you know, development of mindfulness and Dharma Vichaya, and uh, again, it leads us into the state of positive emotional energy. Oops, my beautiful assistant. Dwelling on any skillful state of mind makes it grow. As a result of mindfulness and Dhamma Vichaya, you naturally turn your attention towards the positive aspects of your experience and withdraw energy and interest from things that hold you back, which results in a tremendous release of positive energy. Often, much of our energy is tied up in internal conflict, one impetus cancelling out another, so that we stultify ourselves, and very little of our energy is available to us. As our priorities become clearer through Dhamma Vichaya, conflicts are resolved and energies released. Yeah, there's a second quote just coming up as well, which is on a similar thread. And it's this one particularly uh, brings out how the process of integration just gives birth to a lot of... Uh, it frees up our energy and frees up our emotions a lot. So this is Vanti again from Living with Awareness. In the process of becoming more mindful, you draw your energies together 
and a fragmented sense of self becomes an integrated individuality. As a result, more and more energy is liberated and joy and rapture start to bubble up. This surge of subtle but intense emotional and physical pleasure has the quality of something welling up, overflowing, superabundant, even a little out of control. Expressing positive energy is always pleasurable, and that in itself makes for more integration and therefore yet more vigour. And so these states accumulate and spiral upwards, each supporting the others. Yeah, so quite a lot can just come from this sort of, in a way, humble process of integration, which is very can be very messy and uh, difficult, and you know take a lot of energy. But when you look at, you know, what Bhante's been saying there, a lot can come from it. It can it will, it leads to all the stages of meditation and uh, yeah, the sort of the joy, the liberation of joy and contentment and uh, yeah, those positive mental states, metta and the brahmaviharas that we experience. Uh, a lot of it has that, has its basis in integration. Um, I'm going to talk, talk a bit more about all those, but I just thought before that, just say that I think well we do have more positive emotion than we probably realise. Um, it isn't just that um, joy and uh, rapture that's liberated through you know, times when we become more integrated, uh, and just that the very fact that we're here embarking on the spiritual path is already the manifestation of very positive energy. Actually, uh, the fact that we're making the effort to, you know, be here and uh, uh, perhaps follow up what's been quite a deep drive in ourselves actually to find some, I don't know, to understand ourselves, to find some liberation somewhere, to uh, heal some suffering. That's that is already the manifestation of quite a lot of positive energy and positive mental states. And self-meta, even though we may not experience it, it doesn't, we don't sit there thinking, "Gosh, I feel joyful about that." But actually, uh, you know, you, you, in a way, you do. You are. It has been a very, 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 very positive thing that you've. Um, we've all got ourselves here, whether we're here together and the, that we're practicing the Dharma is already really, really positive. Yeah, it's very, uh, very positive karma as well. I think it's a very fundamental aspect of self-meta, as well. So we mustn't. Um, play that down actually I think in fact the more we could dwell on it and try to become aware of it that could could be very very nourishing in ourselves to understand that in ourselves that really positive drive that is in there in our hearts and uh, you know get to know it and maybe it's got an image that's we can sort of find get to know it in that sort of way some people do have uh, quite strong images for the, their sort of spiritual passions and that just sort of spark them off like the well there's this image of the darkening that people often some people are inspired by that very sort of free um flying darkening figure or i've been very into tigers myself recently uh just a sort of the full the wholehearted um, vigor of a tiger sort of springing across the sky and i uh, had a had a meditation which and i imagined myself as a tiger um and that's that sort of stayed with me I think so. It's important again. Yeah, just let ourselves have those experiences, and uh, which 
um, yeah, the mythic side of us is very important to nourish as well in relation to our positive emotion. Okay, so this, this, talking a bit more about this second stage of the path. And so Bounty calls this stage the stage of positive emotional energy or spiritual emotion. So it's, it's interesting, spiritual emotion. And the stage of meditation. So I thought we, we could have now his original description from the seminar. I like uh, his little paragraph here of how he originally formulated it. Then comes what I describe as the stage of positive emotion. By positive emotion, of course, I mean friendliness, compassion, joy, equanimity and faith and devotion. Inasmuch as positive emotion is something that moves, not something static, this is also the stage of energy. In this stage, one tries to make oneself as emotionally positive as possible. One overcomes all negative emotions. One refines one's emotions and develops not just positive, but spiritual emotions. We enter the realms of spiritual beauty. This is also the stage of meditation, because these positive emotions and the energies that you generate carry you through all the levels of dhyana. It's the stage of meditation, not only in the sense of sitting in meditation, but the stage of being emotionally positive, if possible in a highly spiritual sense. Whatever you're doing, whether you're sitting, meditating, working, talking, or just being quietly by yourself. Yeah, so this all comes from this sort of freeing up experience that we have with integration of, um, yeah, sort of letting, there's a letting go of feeling of wholeness as conflicts are resolved and, well, it does take a lot of energy to hold these different aspects of us down and under control. So the more we are able to just, just sort of let go and trust ourselves, really, we can, we can just sort of go with, uh, our energy just begins to flow, they begin to flow along in the same stream, So yes, yeah, some of these experiences, then they, they do lead directly to uh, when we sit down in meditation, we can actually feel that sense of um, of integration sometimes. I don't know if anybody's um, got a sense of that, of a, a sense of just feeling that bit more sort of whole and collected and in meditation, a sort of sense of um, not having to work that hard to just be there and be with yourself and how pleasurable that can be. Yeah, I'm sure we all have had flashes of that and even longer periods sometimes. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, I was, think, I was thinking it's, it's partly that we're feeling more at peace with ourselves. Because we've made peace with ourselves because we've got to know the different aspects. And they, so they're not warring, they're not sort of shouting for attention. We know they're there. And there's a sort of peace that comes with that, I think, of actually owning the different aspects of ourselves. And that peace can be lovely to experience when we're at peace with ourselves. Even when you know, being, we're at peace with the unskillful sides of ourselves as well as the skillful. 
Yeah, and uh, we sort of, there's a whole forgiving element to that, really. We have to forgive ourselves um, and just think, well, I'm, I'm working on that. It, I'm not perfect. And so we can be at peace with that, those, all those different sides. <clears throat> and this can, we can experience this on and off the cushion as well. A sense of absorption, maybe, in ourselves. I think the more we have that sense of peace in ourselves, the more spontaneously sometimes we can um, be lifted up out of ourselves. Uh, yeah, sometimes it can happen in, in the landscape, a sense of beauty in nature. Uh, so being, perhaps we're just sitting somewhere looking at something beautiful uh, or just something quite ordinary, actually, that we suddenly find beautiful. You know, it is a, a, a sort of a twig or something or... Maybe we're watching a little insect walking across the lawn. Anyway, the, or a sunset, it, it may be anything. And um, there's this sort of just sense of actually dropping into the present in ourselves and how that can just open up into something uh, very, very beautiful, a very beautiful experience of a heightened beauty, really, the heightened beauty that we see when we're really, really present. And all those aspects of ourselves aren't clamouring for attention anymore. We're actually just able to be, aren't we, for a few moments. And being on retreat, of course, is a, usually a, a really helpful way of... Uh, and I know you've, some of you have just been on retreat together. Uh, but uh, it, it helps us to set the conditions up for that. We've got less stimulus, I guess. There's less distractions and things. Mm, so I was just thinking, actually... I'm not sure if this is right, but I had a little theory that perhaps this sort of feeling of beauty, this experience, deeper experience, can then, in a, for that moment, becomes the centre of our mandala, and everything sort of just shakes down around it. You know, our kaleidoscope just sort of shifts, and uh, there we are. It's an, uh, we can become absorbed into it somehow. Very, very deeply positive. And. Yeah, there's. I'm sure we've all heard. There's a traditional. Um, there's a traditional description, or anyway, of how our states of mind, our states of consciousness, can become more and more um, absorbed, and uh, uplifted, and happy, and refined, called the dhyanic states, the four dhyanas, four absorptions. And yeah, Bhante's again. He's written quite a bit on these, and he's has his own way of uh, bringing them out through symbolism, um, which I find really helpful too. I thought I'd share some of that. Uh, and so, yeah, the first stage of, of concentration which we might enter into is, has, got a, uh, has got the quality of integration as its main component, actually. So this integration leads straight into this first dhyana. Uh, and Bhante describes it as a state of integration. Yes. Oh, yeah, the happy, healthy human state. So that, that's the... That's, that uh, state of that integration is ideally the happy, healthy human state that we could be in all of the time, uh, in and out of meditation, of, of just being naturally with ourselves. He says, our energies all start flowing together just like a great river fed by many streams flowing on into the ocean. So there's, with that, there's an open-hearted quality of just ease, really. It's, things just feel easy, and we... We, um, we can just think our thoughts, which is a wonderful luxury. You, can, you find yourself to be, just be able to think without suddenly zooming off into something else. Uh, our minds are just uh, we're sort of with us, really. They're not going against us. We're feeling like everything is going with us. 
very, it's a very lovely feeling. There's a lot of clarity there, but it's also warm around it. Uh, so that's like this, this sort of first stage. Uh, and Bhatti describes this as being a very natural thing. So it's, it's the product of us leading, leading a truly human life, he says. Um, sometimes we do need to change aspects of our lives, and that change can lead, give, give rise to the sort of simplicity from which we can experience ourselves in that sort of way, actually. Uh, he was saying, ideally, as soon as one sits down to meditate, as soon as one closes one's eyes, one should go straight into dhyana. But many of us don't find that. <laughs> but it, it, he says it should be as simple and natural as that. I think maybe that's what Bounty finds. But um, yeah, but in, in a way, we could find this encouraging. <laughs> that, uh, it, that there's nothing magic about dhyana. There's nothing magic about that sort of state of consciousness. It's really where we can go to if we choose to, if we choose, um, well, simplification. I mean, a month without going shopping, actually, I felt simpler. I wasn't, um, I mean, it makes me sound like a, last week I thought I sounded a bit, um, anyway, I've been telling you all my different things I'm working with, aren't I? So anyway, so that's a, but anyway, with the, sh- with the shopping, it definitely le- led to a sort of simpler, a sen- simpler sense of being, it definitely um, wasn't craving so much. So that's just the first dhyana, which sounds wonderful enough in itself, and it's got this sort of ordinary attainable quality to it. Um, but the second dhyana really comes in meditation uh, much more because uh, it's a deeper quality of a sense of uplift and it's a sense of inspiration that bubbles up from the depths. So you're beginning, beginning more immersed in, more immersed really, you're letting go of uh, everything much more deeply so that... Uh, Bounty calls it the stage of inspiration or the stage of the artist or the poet, uh, which I think is lovely, this sort of sense of an uplift, uplifting energy just bubbling up. And it can be combined with um, joy and a real rapture and sometimes apparently a really, I don't get this, flooding raptures which um, can make your hair stand on end even because it's so strong. Um, but that strength of rapture comes from conflicts being... Um, released in the psyche, apparently. So when that sort of meditation can come after you have let go of something and freed something up in your psyche, in the depths, really, uh, energy is really is released, and it sort of you get this sense of relief with it. And then there's an even deeper stage, is the third dhyana, which Pandi calls the stage of permeation or the stage of the mystic, and that's uh, he says where inspiration completely takes you over. You're just the mouthpiece, the servant of that inspiration. You are the inspiration. The inspiration is you. You're completely, it's a bit like you're really, um, you've really totally let go of the world in a sense and you're just within that. You're immersed. And uh, I quite like the traditional image of, the traditional image has a lotus flower which is underwater and it's sort of soaked in the water, um, completely soaked. Yeah, it's a... That could be the rose, but the rose wouldn't really, I don't know, it might fall apart if it was soaked. Water lily might be better at this point. (laughs) And then the fourth stage is the stage of radiation or the stage of the magician. So we're really getting to a very different stage here. Um, Bounty doesn't say very much about that. He says we become so positive that we just radiate. We do radiate. Our whole personality radiates. It's a bit like we, we're just exemplifying that whole process of um, inspiration and uplift and, and knowledge, really, that comes with that. 
Um, so they're a wonderfully rich, uh, inspiring series of experiences, even to hear about, and they are very attainable for us. But, um, at quite sometimes at quite surprising moments, and so I don't think that's not me, and I'll never experience that because you'll probably will, um, or probably have done. These things can sometimes they we experience them less when we ex, uh, more when we don't expect them. That's right. If you really try to work towards dhyana, um, think I'm, I'd I've done this actually on um, solitary retreats. I've thought, well, I'm just going to see how far I can get. I sort of sit down and sort of grip my teeth mentally. I haven't done this much recently. Anyway, um, and it seems to be. I get towards some sort of dead end. It like it's a bit like I I dry up, so that sort of goal orientation just doesn't work with the mind. It's a bit like what I was saying with forcing the bud to open. It doesn't work. It has to be a natural opening of the heart in meditation as well. It's just in a way it's it's an opening through awareness and love. It really is, and that's all we can all we can do is try and deepen that awareness and deepen that love and be who we are uh, and just stay on the ball. Um, yeah. Yes, it's, you can't sort of being goal oriented doesn't seem to help. Yeah, but even the touch of one of those dhyanic states can show us something different about life. I think that's what's so important about them. We don't have to have much of that experience to show us that life can be um, there's something much subtler. I think we could probably have all had something like this even in listening to music, say. Uh, I don't know, it feels like you get transported, your soul or your heart gets transported somewhere different. and uh, uh, Or it, and it might be something different for different people, doing smart work or even being in the garden or whatever it is, looking at the fire. Something in you, you, you know there's something far bigger in you and you feel it and it, it takes you away. Uh, and in the traditional rendering of this particular stage, it's called the stage of yogic heat, apparently. Pray yoga, um, and there's, so they, there's lots of images of heat. That this meditation, I haven't quite related to it totally. Uh, something about these uplifting states, which are related to as a inner heat. That maybe it's the heat of the heart. It's also the, the fire of the emotions, um, uplifting and becoming very rarefied. I had a quote that. In the dhyanas, it's as though an inner spiritual heat is developed, out of which a softening and melting of self-definition happens. So we begin to uh, loosen up, I guess, loosen up our view of ourselves through that. And that's what we're really trying to do on the Buddhist path, really. It's, um, we're trying to be less fixed. We're try- we are trying to open ourselves up in whatever way, go beyond our expectations and our goals and... Um, open up into the unknown. I was talking about that in the first talk, I think. Trying to go into the unknown. Let go of our self-centeredness as well. So yeah, these dhyanas, they, they mediate reality for us. There's a sort of subtlety about them, which is quite, un, un, quite different to our waking state. And then beauty is very important. Bhante talks quite a lot about beauty in relation to this stage as well, that it's a and that can be something that leads us, that draws us into these um, more inspired states. <laughs> yeah. And just briefly, uh, yeah, technically, uh, in order to gain insight, um, 
we, we, uh, it helps to be in one of those, well, the very basic dhyana state of integration and uh, clear thinking. That's a very good platform, apparently, for really looking into the nature of existence. Uh, yeah, so... Everybody doing all right? I'm trying to be a bit shorter than last week's, but who knows? Mm. So, on the, so we, I'm moving to the next section about cultivating the positive emotions because uh, we don't need to just sit and integrate and wait to see what happens. We can, as we know, we can actually develop metta. We can cultivate these positive mental states um, and uh, the Brahma Viharas and we can develop faith and devotion uh, in our practice. Mm, yes, so, yes, let's see... Um, yeah, and yeah, because they, the positive emotions are so important. Without them, we can get very sort of dry and discouraged, can't we? And we can begin to lose energy and lose enthusiasm, which is a shame if we do that. And often, we do do that. It is because we're lacking in meta, and we really do need to um, give attention to that if we can actually sort of do more <coughs> meta bhavna practice. Um, yeah, mindfulness doesn't keep us going in the way that meta does. It's really like a uh, sort of energy food. I'm just thinking about that. What you get at the gym, those drinks that keep you going um, when you keep the blood sugar up. I think probably meta is a bit like that. We need our fix of meta. Bante's called it the lifeblood of the spiritual community. And he says, or he also said, there's no spiritual life without meta or without the positive emotions. Uh, so they're not an add-on. They're not just something that we can think our way to insight and then it'd be nice if we feel metal towards people. Uh, it's not like that at all. It's, it's the other way round, really, that uh, um, there isn't any separating out of meta and the rational mind. Uh, neither is better than the other. We need both. They're two sides of a coin. So, yes, so how to cultivate the positive emotions. Um, yes, yeah, so Vante's... Well, we're not always in touch with emotion, that's one thing, and we're certainly not always in touch with positive emotions. Uh, so one thing Vante said, is it's just important to be in touch with whatever feeling that we do have. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, it's a raw material, then, for us to work in our metta. As we know, like when we begin the metta bhavana, it really helps to be in touch with ourselves, have some sense of where we are at right now, rather than where we would like to be, um, I remember it was revolutionary when I discovered that. When I, I think I've been doing metabolism for about three years, and then somebody said, oh, it'd be a good idea to work out how you're feeling at the beginning of the practice, because we weren't really taught it in the old days, and we had to sort of muddle your way through. Um, and that was very helpful. So I've just got a quote from Banty about this. It's very important that we establish contact with our feelings, with our emotions, whatever they are. Especially establish contact with our positive emotions, if we have any. For the time being, we may have to establish contact with what we call negative emotions. It's far better to establish contact, real living contact with our negative emotions, and feel them and experience them and acknowledge them which doesn't mean indulging them, than to remain in that alienated state and not experience our feelings or emotions at all. 
Right. Yeah. Just a little intermission from me here. Um, a poem by Derek Walcott. Love after love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes, Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. Yeah, so that's uh, emphasising the importance of just engaging ourselves with ourselves with our emotions with our hearts in our practice with everything we do and well I had a good example of this two days ago I think or perhaps it was yeah I think it was um Sunday morning actually I, I had I had a it was lovely sunny morning and I needed to sit down to write this talk and I didn't really want to I wanted to go outside and enjoy myself sort of thing so I had this you know different I had these um two different sides of me so uh, I was just feeling bored, really. I was sort of sitting there in front of the computer in the dark corner of my room, looking out at the sunshine. And, uh, yes. And I thought, well, that sometimes that's it. We can't be bothered to lift a finger to do something creative or something that's good for us. In fact, particularly if it is good for us, we don't want to do it. And that's, that's what it felt like that morning. I was um, a bit rebellious. So I thought, well, anyway, that's, that's lack of integration, isn't it? That sort of different sides going on. I've decided I'm going to write the talk and on the whole I'm finding it a very creative process to be writing the talk, usually. yeah. And yet I'm out of touch with it on that occasion. So I, I just started typing into the computer how I felt and what was going on because I thought I don't, now I'm going to engage with this. Um, so I, I thought I'd just read to you what I typed. This little flow... So, uh, where does it start? It all seems so abstract. Is this what I really want to write? What am I trying to say? Where am I in the middle of it all? Is something else drawing my heart? I want to be outside, where the birds are singing. I want to do some pottery work, go to the gym, go for a walk, chat with friends, anything other than sit behind a computer, talk writing. That feels like hard work. But already, writing this, my heart is engaging again. I need to bring my heart and emotions into whatever I'm doing. That keeps me engaged, keeps things alive. Sitting here, I can hear a beautiful bird singing. I can see tulip buds pushing up through the leaves in my window box. 
I can see the sun illuminating the heads of two radiantly golden daffodils. I feel connected to that, even though I'm still sitting at my computer. I feel creative and part of the world. My heart is opening. I feel curious and happy and wondering what's next. That was simple. I just wanted to connect, feel I had a voice. I can talk, with, I can talk about whatever I want to. It's my life. I can do it the way I want to. Despite, despite the voices I sometimes have inside that say it should be a proper talk, it needs to explain the true Dharma. <laughs> but what is that for me now? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so I thought, well, that's interesting, isn't it? What, what is it that helps us open our hearts? And to, I thought well, just giving myself permission to find out, although it could have taken me anywhere. It could have taken me out into the park or, you know, I could have just put the talk down but um, uh, it actually helped me come back to the talk Mm. and I thought well yeah my heart opens well when does your heart open I think that's a little writing exercise you could do at home my heart opens when Uh, and I thought I've got my heart opens when I feel free and spacious Uh, it opens when I'm speaking to a friend when I'm talking of what is really alive for me, of what has most relevance and meaning. It opens when I witness another's opening of the heart. So that's interesting. It's sort of sparked off by somebody else. When I hear of someone else's joy or their sorrow or their pain or their grief. Uh, In nature, just being there, witnessing the wild, ordinary beauty of how things grow together, the interconnectedness of creatures, I find that very moving. So it opens my heart. Here I've got the watching tiny insects crawling huge distances. There's something about that, isn't it? They're so small, aren't they? I remember watching a slug once trying to cross over a pavement and it began to go in circles and it was so sort of sad, really. <laughs> and uh, what could one do? Sometimes you pick up a slug with a leaf and put it on the other side, but I guess that's... Anyway, that's another point. Yeah. So um, beauty opens my heart. It nourishes it. Though sometimes I thought, I've written here, my heart can feel too close to appreciate beauty. And that's very painful, isn't it? I remember going to a very beautiful place once on a solitary retreat and I was just, I looked at it and I thought, this is beautiful but I can't feel anything. And that was more painful than if I hadn't been there. It was, you know, just feeling that closedness is very, very painful. And then, then, the process then, um, yeah, I remember that particular process of, just having to sit with that and work out what it was that I was feeling, and there wasn't I was blocked, I wasn't feeling anything, and you know, letting things emerge. Because I think when I have that blocked feeling, I'm it can be a fear that I'm sitting on something or hiding something from myself that's probably negative. Uh, but these days, sometimes what it turns out turns out to be is a um, feeling of regret or a sense of having done something unskillful. And I find it useful, actually. So I think well, if I feel that blocked feeling, I think, oh, there's something here I, I, can, I can work out. I can find out what that is and I can do something with that. And so I wait for it to arise. And uh, particularly if there's a sort of nagging feeling of um, regret or anxiety. Yeah. And often I can think back until I think, what have I been doing? And I get back to a particular point and I think, oh, right, it was that thing I said to that person that at the time I fooled myself that it was all right, but actually it was a bit negative and... It was a bit sort of carping, or I didn't really mean what I said. It wasn't quite accurate at all. Uh, and I, well, actually, I find when I find that, I can let go and resolve it, and maybe I confess something to myself, or I, 
a resolve to confess to the other person. So all those things actually are things that hold us down, I think. So ethical practice and confession um, is a really major part of helping our hearts open. Very, very important for it's been for me and it's a horrible process to go through. It's about like throwing up sometimes. It's, you know, I really, I really hate being sick. It's a sort of sense of, um, but I know I'm going to feel better afterwards. But it's sort of something about confession. It's not as bad as that, really. But uh, there is a sense of having to regurgitate something, <laughs> I suppose, that you've done. You have to sort of go back over it and, in a way, become very, very conscious and really own that you did it, actually, and really regretful. And then you can let go of it when you've been through that process. Yeah. So yes, opening to the spiritual life is an opening of the heart. And the, a whole spiritual path is an opening and a blossoming of the heart. And i just uh, reminding us that in the East, the, um, the idea of the heart was a mind. It was a mind as well as the heart. They, they don't have the, the sense, apparently, of the, as we do in the West, so much of the head being the mind and the heart being the emotions. In, apparently in the East, it was a more co- combined sense of heart holding wisdom as well as compassion. So, yeah, uh, I was just saying, well, the heart does seem to naturally hold wisdom, I think. I think it makes sense to me that the heart-mind is a combination like that or an essence. And we we just need to learn to listen to that as much as we can and uh, take it seriously. I was thinking, our society is so rational, isn't it? And... um, Often emotions aren't taken seriously in our society. Um, even I think even us as Buddhists don't take emotions always that seriously, or feelings, or the heart, and we think we can sort of cut through it and get by and push through. Uh, but they are they are saying something, and they do matter, and they're, they're very very important. Um, got a lovely story here, uh, which I was going to tell myself, but. Uh, I realised whenever I tell it, I just burst into tears for some reason. I don't quite know why. I did it at breakfast, telling somebody what the story was. So I thought, oh, Munich is going to uh, tell this story. Because I find it such a moving story. And it demonstrates the importance of love and compassion, really, in, in life, in the spiritual life. It's, um, it's a story from uh, modern Zen tradition in Japan. We are told that there was a young man who was a great wastrel, ran through all his money, having had a good time, became thoroughly disgusted and fed up with everything, including himself. So in the end he thought, all right, what can I do? There's nothing left for it. Go to the monastery, go to the Zen monastery, become a monk. That was the last resort. He didn't want to become a monk, but there was nothing else to do. So he went along, I suppose he knelt in the snow outside the gate for three days. That's what we're told these people have to do. But anyway, in the end he saw the abbot. The abbot was a grim old soul, so he listened to what the young man had to say. Hmm, didn't say very much, but when the young man had told him everything, he said, Hmm, well, is there anything you're good at? So the young man thought and thought. And he said in the end, yes, I'm not so bad at chess. So the abbot said, all right. So he called for his attendant and he said, go and call such and such a monk. 
So the monk came. He was an old monk, been a monk for many, many years. Then the abbot said to the attendant, bring my sword. So the sword was brought and it was put in front of the abbot. So then the abbot said to the young man and the old monk, you two will now play a game of chess. And whoever loses, I shall cut off his head with this sword. So that surprised them, especially the young man. They looked at him and they saw that he meant it. So the young man made his first move. The old monk, who wasn't a bad player, made his move. The young man made his, and the old monk made his. And after a little while, the young man felt the perspiration pouring down his back and trickling over his heels. So he concentrated, putting everything he had into that game. Concentrated. And he managed to beat back that other old monk. So he drew a great breath of relief. Ah, the game isn't going too badly. But just then, when he was feeling he was going to win, he looked up and he saw the face of that old monk. So, as I've said, he was an old man, an old monk. He'd been a monk maybe for 20, 30, 40 years. He'd undergone much suffering, many austerities. He'd meditated very much. So his face was thin and worn and austere. So the young man thought, I've been an absolute wastrel. My life is no good to anybody. And this monk, he's led such a good life. And now he's going to have to die. So a great wave of compassion came up. He felt so sorry for this old monk because he saw him just sitting there playing this game in obedience to the abbot's command and now being beaten and so he was going to have to die. So a tremendous compassion welled up in this young man's heart and he thought, I can't allow this. So he deliberately made a false move. The monk made a move the young man deliberately made another false move. And it was clear he was losing. He couldn't retrieve his position. And suddenly the abbot upset the board. He said, no one has won and no one has lost. He said to the young man, you've learned two things today, concentration and compassion. He said, since you've learned compassion, you'll do. So this story illustrates also that if you only have compassion, the young man, he'd led such a wretched, such a wasted life, but he was capable of compassion. There was hope for him. He was even ready to give up his own life rather than let the monk sacrifice his. There was such compassion deep down in the heart of this apparently worthless young man. And the abbot saw all this and thought, no, we've got a budding bodhisattva here. So this is how he dealt with him. So this is compassion.
think I find it such a beautiful story, actually, the, the depth of that, the beauty, the beauty of that compassion. Mm. Very moving. Mm. Yeah, so that's something to think about, isn't it? Because he had developed compassion, that he was good enough. Uh, it wasn't because of the concentration or the hard work or anything else. It was the compassion. Mm. Yeah. So for the last chunk of the talk, uh, I thought we'd get down to the root of it all, the root positive emotion, which is metta, and just say a little bit about metta before um, concluding. So I was thinking about metta, um, which is, <coughs> to me, it seems like a very, well, that's the most healthy emotion, the most mature emotion. Um, and I was thinking you could say that metta is the natural response of a healthy heart and mind when it becomes aware of the presence of life in ourselves or in others or in the environment. The natural response of a healthy heart and mind when it becomes aware of the presence of life. So it's the natural response is to just feel metta, to feel uh, appreciation, well-wishing. So metta attunes itself, I thought, to the essence of life and recognises it wherever it meets it, and it feels for it. It empathises. There's a quality of empathy and connectedness and solidarity. So I think that's what the essence of what metta is. It's that sort of, um, it's that sort of recognition, res- resonance maybe of, of life for life, which is really really healthy. It, life wants life to live. It, it wants it to be well. Uh, it's very very natural. And it's very in a way it's very fundamental in a healthy being. I think to want that. When it's fully developed and liberated, really, Metta would recognise that all living forms uh, alike experience suffering and joy in their own way, and it would be really moved by that. Our Metta is moved by that. Uh, I think it is very moving, actually, to when we do really think that as well, reflect on that, that uh, uh, through the differences that we see, because the barriers to all this are our likes and dislikes, aren't they? The, our expectations and our preferences. And if we can just sort of cut through all of those to uh, the essence of of the spark of life in each being, in the centre of the heart of each being, um, yes, then uh, yeah, we would see that what we have in common is uh, the suffering and the joy that is you know fundamental in each being's experience. Um, people ha- like different things; they suffer for different reasons, and people have joy for different reasons. Um, but that doesn't matter. Uh, the main thing is that to wish them well. I thought this is the axial moment at the bottom of our hearts upon which all life spins. The axial moment, this sort of sense of, of uh, resonating with life. It's almost all we need to do is, uh, is do that. We allow ourselves and just get rid of whatever is in the way of us just responding to life in that sort of very basic, down-to-earth, simple sort of way hasn't got to be more complex than that. Uh, sometimes in the metabolism, I just all I do is have one person, and uh, I know this is a bit um, radical. Anyway, uh, it's good to do the five-stage metabolism most of the time. It's a government health warning on this new practice. Um, yeah, so sometimes I just sort of bring one person to, to mind and just spend a lot of time with just that one person so I can really just be with them and uh, imaginatively... Um, well, just I, actually, I, what I need to do is... Uh, take in that they really exist, that they really are alive. 
And I find that it's hard to do that. I think it's hard to get out of our self-centeredness and uh, really do that. And so it takes a bit of time. And so I really just try to, um, I don't know, just make the be with the person so much that they they come to life for me, uh, not for me, but for them. So I really do it in terms of them for themselves. Uh, yeah, and sometimes that does. It's really in a way it's humbling, and it's also inspiring. And of course, this is what the world needs really to bring disharmony, bring harmony into disharmony. There's a, I'll just read one of the, a short verse of the Dhammapada, not by hatred, hatreds. Are hatreds ever pacified here in the world? They are pacified by love. This is the eternal law. And from this sort of bud of, uh, got a lot of buds in this talk, from the bud of metta, we've got a new bud here, this is the, perhaps this, this is a little pinkish white wild rose, from the buds of metta, uh, other, all the other positive emotions blossom, in fact. So I, put, I thought, when the heart, attuned to life, sees suffering, the metta just becomes compassion. It naturally uh, transforms into compassion. When the heart, attuned to life, sees good fortune uh, in another, or beauty, perhaps, then that metta transforms and becomes joy. It becomes happiness at that being's good fortune uh, you don't even think it you don't f- it's not a, nothing in the mind it's just a natural response when the heart attuned to life sees the experience of happiness and joy and sadness and grief sees them coming and going in living beings understands how that happens how that arises and falls then equanimity ari- arises naturally a very serene um, and deep it's the deepest uh, positive emotion Apparently, the most profound is equanimity, uh, and that arises with that. It's got the wisdom element of actually understanding that happiness and joy and sadness rise and fall dependent on conditions and the conditions that we often create for ourselves. When the heart attuned to life is given something, then gratitude naturally arises. When the heart attuned to life sees or hears something it can place its heart upon with trust and confidence and faith arises. When the heart attuned to life is free from inner conflict, when its conscience is clear, then serenity arises, peace arises. And the heart naturally unfolds in meditation. Yeah, it's very beautiful. And the, the root of all this is self is metta. It's self-metta, actually. Uh, because we, if we can relate to that spark of our own life, with the care that we can relate to it in others, uh, then that's the basis of this whole of this whole um, mandala of positive emotion. So there's no end to how long we can give to cultivate self-metta, really. Um, so we've got a strong two-stage practice developing here. It's a lot of self-metta and then another person. Um, and I think it's important to, to reflect on uh, the fact that it isn't selfish, it really isn't selfish to spend a lot of time trying to deepen metta for ourselves because it is the basis of all positive emotions. Um, and if we neglect it, it, it hits us over the head all the time. Our you know, lack of metta for ourselves comes up and is uh, undercuts all the good that we try to do, really. Yeah. So it's not a selfish but a noble thing to do. 
uh, it's not um, indulgent thing to do either. Totally the opposite. It, and from from this positive, yeah, from all of this, uh, our, well, compassion arises. Our responsiveness to the world arises. And here's a lovely little poem which I think um, brings that out very beautifully. It's by a nun called Ren Getsu, I think Japanese. Before setting out again on another bumpy sojourn in this floating world, I settle for a while in the shade of the pines. Yeah, so that's really human, isn't it? And why not settle for a while in the shade of the pines? Yes. Particularly if you're going to set out on a bumpy sojourn in the floating world, it's a, you need all the... Um, you know, the rest you can get and to be in a good state, don't you? Yeah. So, I was thinking, going to the centre of ourselves with self-meta is paradoxically a letting go of self-centeredness. Maybe I should leave it like that. That's uh, complex, isn't it? Um, anyway, i just got this sense that we, going through the depths of ourselves, we do come out of the other end into the universe. It's a bit like th- through the depths of our heart through that self-meta, we open out into universality, actually, uh, because we're no different from anybody else. Um, we, In a sense, uh, well, there isn't any fixed self in us. Yeah, and the more we can sort of open and challenge our hearts, really, then, in, in a sense, we become, we let go a, a lot. And, uh, yeah, that is the beginnings of the arising of the bodhicitta, of the... Uh, um, yeah, the most transcendent sort of love and compassion that we can move towards, and that would be that takes us into our next talk, which will be in a few weeks' time, uh, the third stage of the path, which is the arising of vision, insight into the nature of reality, which we've been doing a little bit so all the way along. I think little glimpses of reality come through all of this. So we're going to end with a, a final poem by Kenneth White, which. Uh, is very profound actually and expresses all of this. Yeah. Knowing now that the life at which I aim is a circumference continually expanding through sympathy and understanding rather than an exclusive centre of pure self-feeling, the whole I seek is centre plus circumference. And now the struggle at the centre is over. The circumference beckons from everywhere. <laughs>